Hey guys, time for another episode of the Jack Mitchell Podcast. Thanks as always for joining me. Uh, if you liked last week's episode where I went solo for a little bit and talked about the most nostalgic places of my youth and you're like, I thought there was going to be a second part of that. There is going to be a second part of that. We are going to release that one uh, next week. And so that will be September 14th that that is coming out because I had an opportunity to talk to today's guest, Dr. Tyler White, this week. And so I wanted to get that in. And so we're going to do that today and get back to the nostalgia next week. Uh, as always, uh, make sure you're subscribed, iTunes, Spotify. Well, it's called Apple now, Apple, Spotify, wherever. If you're not finding the podcast somewhere, please let me know. Uh, and then like our Facebook page, the Jack Mitchell podcast, and make sure you're checking out the other podcasts at podcasthousemedia.com. We're continuing to add titles. Got a big one we're going to add this week that I'm really excited about. Uh, and we're working on getting someone there for everyone. If you know of a podcast, an independent podcast that you think needs a wider audience, let me know. I'd love to get them to be a hot part of Podcast House Media. Uh, with all that said, all right, it's time. Let's get going with our conversation with Dr. Tyler White. Welcome, everybody, once again to another episode of the Jack Mitchell Podcast, unofficially season three of the Jack Mitchell Podcast, and we are ready to go again with another guest today, and I believe this is the first time I've made a callback to season one of the Jack Mitchell Podcast, the very original season of the Jack Mitchell Podcast that was done uh, in the basement by the ping pong table while we were getting beers out of the fridge back in the day and that's how we used to record it that's how this thing got got started since then we've learned about zoom and we've learned about podcast networks and we've learned about inserting ads and we've learned about a whole lot of stuff but really it's the same thing and uh one of my favorite guests that that first time around you may or may not have heard since it's been lost to the internet now is my guest today um i i, I love talking to him because we have a lot of commonalities in that he's uh he's a lincoln guy uh, affiliated, went to now teaching at the University of Nebraska, but also an expert on a lot of things that I think about a lot. And that's a great combination to have someone who you can relate to, but still has that level of expertise. Uh, he is associate professor of practice and the director of the national security program at the University of Nebraska, Lincoln. Um, and does all kind of cool works. Got his PhD in political science from UNL. Research, like I said, in national interest, intelligence studies, nuclear policy, foreign policy, uh, deterrence, a whole lot of those things. And uh, does some teaching now at the University of Nebraska, obviously, as well, in addition to all those things. And Dr. Tyler White is my guest once again today on the Jack Mitchell Podcast. Dr. White, how are you doing today? Welcome well, back to the cast. I'm I'm doing great, Jack. Thank you again for, for having me back. I just love having these conversations and um, yeah, it's, it's great to be able to sit down with someone, uh, and, and just, you know, talk shop, but, uh, you know, I'm a teacher at heart. And so I love to have these conversations with anyone who will sit down with me and, and chat. So I really appreciate the opportunity. Sorry, no ping pong or beer this time. We're doing this over the lunch hour during the middle of the week. So <laughs> yeah, um, I'm in my office. I, 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 you know, they, they would frown on me if I was drinking beer at work. So, uh, so um, yeah, God, they're know, so uptight right? over there. Uh, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and I should also uh, should also add that oh, I'm going to be really nice to Tyler because not only is he a Husker fan like I am, but he's also a Denver Broncos fan. So he's about to endure a lot of pain over the course of the next few weeks. So everybody feel badly for Tyler here. Well, I think I think we have the Royals in common, right? I mean, and we have the Royals, which is the same thing. 
it's been tough. It's been it's been hard being a Royals Broncos Huskers fan for the last couple of years, but you know, I, I suppose we endure. <laughs> Man, yeah, there's just not been a lot of a lot of sports joy, and hopefully, by the time people are listening to this, there has been some. Uh, but nonetheless, um, so l- let's jump in. And I know the first time we talked, uh, I kind of got your background, but I think it's fascinating, and and I want to hear uh, about it and see where it goes again. But uh, you know, how does um, how does somebody grow growing up in Lincoln, doing what you were doing, going to, I believe, Lincoln Southeast High School, uh, end up having the level of interest uh, that you do in issues like national security, uh, end up getting your Ph.D. in political science? Tell me about that journey in Cliff's notes between growing up here in Lincoln to where you are today. Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, I love Lincoln. You know, uh, Lincoln is an awesome place to grow up and, and to live and you know, I, I joke that I kept trying to get out, but never, never successfully made it out. And I think that that's, that's actually okay. Yeah. I graduated from Lincoln Southeast High School in 1999. Uh, and all I really wanted to do was go to the university. Like, you know, um, there's that old, that old Ferris Bueller, you know, saying where he said, you know, to pretend you're sick, you know, bend over and lick your, lick your palms. I know it's childish, but so is high school. You know, like <laughs> I, I couldn't wait to get out of high school. I couldn't wait to get, I, Southeast was great, but I couldn't wait to get to the university. And once I got here, I just like, this is where I wanted to be. And I had always thought to myself, I was going to go to law school um, because I think that's what you, you think when you don't know what you want to do. Um, but you want to be involved in government or you want to be involved in, in that. And for me, political science was this revelation of, well, we, we can study political science is very basic. We study who gets, who gets what and how much and why, right? I mean, politics is literally in everything. It's a study of how human beings, um, negotiate, you know, the, the, the use of limited resources. And I had some amazing professors and people who became lifelong mentors here. Um, and so I was, you know, thinking about going to law school and I got, you know, a semester away. I took the LSAT, you know, I was dating this girl. She was going to go to law school. It's going to be great. And I was like, no, I can't, I can't do this. I don't want to do this. And I, I went to a professor and I said, Hey, I, I was going to go to law school, but I don't want to do that. I kind of want to do what you do. And she was awesome. She was like, I think you can do what I do. And, um, I, I, you know, took this, you know, hard right turn and I took the GRE and I, and I got in and I just started, you know, started studying and, and eventually ended up with my PhD. Um, and my wife did go, my, my girlfriend became my wife, went to, went to law school, started up her own, uh, her own, um, uh, practice right out of law school. And I wasn't going to be the guy that was going to be like, okay, I want you to give that up so that, um, we can go to, you know, some small town mm. in Kentucky or Missouri yeah. or Vermont and I can teach a small liberal arts college. So, um, you know, I, I sort of fell into this position where we got a grant uh, here at the university to start up uh, an intelligence studies program, essentially, to help students who are interested in going into the intelligence community to help to help mentor them, get them the right curriculum, get them the right experiences, and then they can go and, and they can work in the in the IC. And one thing kind of led to another, and I was teaching more classes, and so they put me on a professor of practice track, which I think is kind of a newer uh, invention, but one that I, I see as playing a really strong and important role. And that is, you know, I'm here to teach. I'm here to um, uh, run student programming. And I do do research as well. Um, a lot of times when you think of a, of a professor at an R1 institution, you know, they're there primarily to research and then they also teach. Right. I was lucky to be in a department where we had people that did both of those things exceptionally well. So, you know, I, I feel deeply privileged to have the job that I have. 
Um, and I've just been able to do some amazing things over the past uh, decade and a half. I was, uh, I probably have told you, I was a political science major in college too. And I went to law school because I didn't know what to do. So um, we were like this and then we kind of went like that with, with things. Yeah. Uh, what? Why no, do you? I'm not down on law school at all. I I think no. law school is great. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not. Well, I yeah. I'm I. Uh, it took me a place I didn't expect, but yeah. So be, but <laughs> that's okay. but in also honestly though, that's but uh, th- that's why I went at that point is because I didn't yeah. know, I didn't know what to do next exactly. I had a political science degree, and I, and, and I took the classes because I was interested in them. Not so much because I was thinking about the vocation they would lead to necessarily. Yeah. Like I didn't yeah. take, like, I don't, it's, it's interesting now because I have a son who's in college and I'm encouraging him to think very differently than I did when I was in college. I'm encouraging yeah. him to think about what he's learning and how it gets him to where he wants to be. And I didn't do that. I mean, I, again, I, I, I was not that, the, and I'm not saying there aren't vocations that come from a political science major, but I didn't have one in mind at the time nor did I even think about what they would have been for the most part. Yeah. I always think it's funny. People are like, why are you in political science? Do you want to be a politician? Uh, and I, and I laugh, you know, I was the advisor in this department for a long time and the number of different kinds of jobs people get with a political science degree is awesome. I mean, we were hiring people were getting jobs, you know, and they still are right out of school with a political science degree. And the reason is, a political science degree teaches people how to write and it teaches people how to think critically and it teaches people how to communicate. And those those skills are universally, um, you know, uh, in demand. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's not like, you know, you go you go get a business degree and you're like, then you go to business. Right. Um, what we found <laughs> when we did some statistics was. You know, sixty uh, percent of our of our of our undergrads were going straight into businesses. You know, they were working in in businesses with those skills, which are incredibly marketable. And then we had a a, a solid group thing going to, to law school, and then some going to grad school. And then the area that I am passionate about is is people who want to go into public service, so they want to work for the government um, and you know uh, and serve their country in, in that in that way. So, you know, we see a lot of different folks going a lot of different places. Yeah, I'm like I'm trying to remember why and I don't I don't know if you remember this about yourself or not, but why that that field or that area of study early on in undergrad was something that interested you. L- like I think it was that I just wanted to be able to I think I thought it was important to be able to talk competently about that it was very important to be able to, to talk competently in places where not a lot of people were talking competently about that <laughs> like that uh, that's what it was and i'm sure some people go because they've got sort of they've got things figured out and they want to you know advocate or they whatever it might be yeah. that wasn't really it for me I, what what was that like for you and i guess also when you were an advisor and you were hearing about students in the undergrad level who were you know either going down that road or thinking about that, that road what was it, what was motivating for them to do that? Yeah, I mean, I was, I was a nerd in high school and that I was a policy debater. And to me, debate was, that was the best thing, you know, in high school that I could have ever done. It taught me about the world and it fed all of these really, you know, I remember I was very young, but I remember things like Chernobyl and I remember things like, you know, as I was older, remember the Berlin Wall falling down, the end of the Soviet Union, like all that stuff just animated my imagination, like so interested in that kind of stuff. Um, 
And, you know, in high school in debate, you know, our last year of, of debate, uh, the topic was Russia, right? In Russia in 1998, 1999 is a place that is going through some stuff, right? <laughs> um, yeah. but the, but you know, but the Cold War to me was so fascinating and to have been able to live through some of that. Um, and then, you know, one of the, our debaters, he was, he was really, really good. And he goes to college and he goes to Truman State University and he comes back to visit. And I said, what's your major? And he said, political science. And I'm like, what is that? Right. <laughs> and he's like, you get to like do all the stuff you were doing in debate, but you get to study it in class. And I was like, I have to do this. So, you know, I walked onto campus in the fall of 1999 as a political science major. I never faltered. I end up with a PhD and now I'm teaching it. It was just like one of those things that I fell in love with because your job was to try to figure out what's going on in this great big world. And it is full of endless, endlessly fascinating things. Mm-hmm. And so if you're curious and you, and you, and you, and you really want to know how things work to me, that was just the, you know, it was a match made in heaven in a lot of ways. It's frustrating. Um, you know, the way you know, research methodology and all these other kinds of things that come along, there's always going to be challenges. But when you find something that you really like, those challenges, you know, you really step up to the plate and you like, okay, you know, I, I accept the challenge. And and so for me, that's always been uh, the reason why I, I wanted to do it. I'm just kind of thinking about your own timeline that, you know, you started, you graduated, you said high school in 99 and then going through. So you're going through political science and then eventually this kind of focus on other international affairs, national security and everything all around uh, 9-11, you know, military presence and all of that in the Middle East and everything else going. Like, that's a very specific time period that feels like it's I know it's not over, but it feels like it's over right now. That's a very specific time to be going through those issues. What was that like? Yeah, I mean, this is so. Um, I, I have a, a, a group of students, uh, the, the Intelligence Community Scholars Program that I run here on campus, and one of the things that I realized was none of them were born. Uh, maybe one or two were even born when nine eleven happened, right? And so, I, I was a junior on campus, and I remembered waking up. I was listening to the radio. I think Bob and Tom in the morning, right? Mm-hmm. Um, everyone can remember where they were, and you know, they're like us. Uh, you know, an airplane is flown to the World Trade Center, and that immediately got my attention. Now, it was funny because, you know, it, it was Osama bin Laden and I had been working on in, in debate. You know, one of the one of the things we talked a lot about was Osama bin Laden and Al Qaeda and what would happen if Al Qaeda ever struck inside the United States. So when I saw that happen, you know, I put the pieces together quickly, you know, and and so this is one of the benefits is, you know, you have that background information and all of a sudden things make sense more quickly. Right. Um, and I remember, you know, the thing b- being on campus and, and what that was like, I've had the chance to work with so many people who were at the Pentagon that day, who were at the Central Intelligence Agency that day, who, you know, and, and so next week, actually, I'm having a small for my for my students. I'm having a bunch of those people come in and talk about what 9-11 was like, because, you know, our, the students have no living memory of it. And yet they're going to go into this into this profession that was profoundly shaped by those events. And so the war on terror and, you know, all of these different, uh, you know, in, in a lot of ways, the way I look at it, we really took our eye off the ball during those years. We focused on on something that was serious, but it wasn't existential. And while we were doing that, you know, Russia and China and, and, and some of those bigger powers, they just kind of kept the ball rolling. 
Um, and it leads us back to today, which is an era that really feels a lot more like the Cold War, um, you know, than, than this time we spent, uh, on the, in the war on terror. But, you know, again, a lot of students without living memory of it, but I've worked with a lot of people who lived it. And so, you know, as an educator, my desire is to try to connect those dots for people so that they have a better understanding of it. And, 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 you know, my perception of the, the term, which by the way is not, this is just a kind of a very probably shallow perception, but my perception of what national security means and meant then say 2005 compared to 2023 has totally like totally changed. And again, granted I had a, but I was thinking about stopping, you know, terror essentially uh, Islamic terrorism, essentially Mm -hmm. when I was thinking about that. And I don't think about that a whole lot anymore, you know, for, for, for better or worse on, on this whole thing. It's, it's incredible how, how much just that, that thought of keeping this country secure, just how different that looks just a few years later. Oh, a hundred percent. You know, this is the other thing too that I really noticed when I got a chance to work with um, folks in the IC and even in the defense department, they think about so many things that we don't think about every day in terms of how, because it's all, they're all pieces that sort of fit together. Right. And I remember, you know, in the mid 2000s, you know, all of a sudden stuff started coming out of the IC about climate change. And in the in the tens, the, you know, the Pentagon got is really concerned about climate change all of a sudden. And the reason they're concerned is because, oh, my gosh, you know, we're spending a lot of money putting places, people in inhospitable places and it's going to get more expensive. But also um, a lot of the bases that we use will no longer be usable. And also, if you think that you're having issues with migration now, imagine what it's like when places become unlivable. Right. And the wealthier countries are going to be able to like we'll be able to kind of like work our way through it, but the poorer countries will not, and their people will leave. And so, you know, all of a sudden there's all these issues that form what we think of as, as security and national security, and it's complex. And so, you know, the luxury sometimes is being able to point at the Russians and be like, well, they're the adversary and, you know, and we can fixate on that and, and we can think about how to deter them. And we can think about all that kind of stuff. But, you know, increasingly we're living in a time in which it's economic, it's environmental, it's strategic, it's tactical, like all these different levels now are creating a really complex security picture. And, you know, one of the reasons I do what I do is because I want to send smart people into a position to be able to to yeah. handle that, right? Yes. Uh, from a very selfish perspective, I want to make sure that I'm safe. So, you know, <laughs> so I want to find the best people I can be like, go solve that problem. It's yeah. You're training, you're training yeah. the people who are going to keep you safe eventually down the road, yeah. which, yeah, I mean, which very, is something it's very self-centered, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, no, it's, it helps all of us. Uh, and, and, and to that question, right? Like you hear things like, you know, you're like the doomsday clock. You hear, you know, continued yeah. concerns about nuclear threats. We're thinking about that more. Again, and, and there are some things, you know, if something happens, there are some things you're not going to be able to stop, obviously, and you hope that it doesn't get there. But in terms of how intricate and how thought out our, you know, national security is, and, and I know that's such a broad, stupid question, yeah, but sure, like how, sure. how safe should we feel in general? Yeah. Um, if this, if this helps, if this helps, uh, at all, I'll, t- I'll tell this quick story. I, um, Many years ago now, Admiral Haney, who was the commander at Stratcom, invited me to lunch. 
And um, Admiral Haney is like the most calm and collected person I think I've ever been around. Uh, his his voice was not loud. Uh, he was slow and deliberate with everything he said. And he put me at ease. Uh, and I think that's the exact kind of person you want, you know, in control of the nuclear arsenal. Right. But he sat down and he said something like, hey, you know, the thing that weighs on my mind the most is I think we really understand deterrence and you know, I think we've got a good handle on it. We've got the capabilities to 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 do that. What I worry about is what the next generation is going to be like, and can they come in and can they, they deal with these challenges, which are just getting faster and and so on and so forth. And so, you know, when I when when he said that, I was like, well, this is a way that I can help, right? Um, I think that we have a very good and robust system to keep us safe. But I also think that that is contingent entirely upon the next group of people being able to step into that role and to be able to perform. Um, And mistakes are always going to be made, but how quickly can you recover from those? And challenges are always going to change. So how quickly can you understand those? Um, And, you know, for me, the reason I care about this stuff and the reason I know about this stuff is because if there's something out there that scares you a little bit, you want to know every single thing you possibly can about it. Because if you have that knowledge, then you can make the right decisions and you can do the best you can. And I think that right now we're doing a good job. And I, and I, and I actually look at, I look at just the last couple of weeks, you know, you had uh, the South Koreans and the Japanese, like, at Camp David shaking hands and being like, okay, we can cooperate. That blows my mind. That's amazing, right? These, Mm -hmm. we think of them as allies. They hate each other. And there's a lot of historical reasons for that. And we're, we're making headway there. If we look at what's going on with NATO, NATO has never been in such good shape. And you couldn't have said that a couple of years ago, right? Russia has really galvanized it. Um, And I look at the way that we are approaching our friendships and, and partnerships in the world in just the last couple of years and I have a lot of reason to be optimistic. Um, and again, you have to know that these things are going to go up and down and there's going to be, you know, um, uh, it, you know, it ebbs and flows. But if you kind of understand the system, you can see things that can reassure you and you can see things that are concerning. And if you see things that are concerning, you know, um, I feel like at least I'm not I'm not a policymaker and I'm not somebody who, you know, works over at a combatant command or an intelligence agency. But I feel like I can help other people who want to do those things to understand it. And if I can be in a room and 25 people understand it, that to me is more powerful than just me understanding it. Does that make, does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, so, so I would say this, you know, going back to what Admiral Haney was concerned about, I feel comfortable with where we're at. But you can never feel comfortable about the future unless you're doing something to try to ensure that it's going to you're going to continue to maintain those advantages. And that's not certain. That's not certain, right? Yeah. Yeah. 100%. You got to keep working. <laughs> I mean, you, you've, yeah. you've got to, you got to do what, you know, what you're doing and what others are. Yeah. That's what I worry about, right? Is that, is that, are, are the people I want to do well at something working as hard as the other people who are trying to do well at it that are on the other side of things, whether it's the football team getting ready for a game or, <laughs> or the right. things that, you know, the things that, that you're talking about exactly. Um, yeah, uh, you preparation ma- matters. <laughs> yeah, you, you mentioned a couple of, of things kind of going on. I, I wanted to ask you about some of those things and maybe just kind of get your perspective on the headlines that we're seeing in the news when it comes to the things yeah, going sure. on internationally. Um, can you help me understand why Russia, why why Vladimir Putin would 
I understand he wants the land, okay? I understand there's history behind it. I understand all of those things. But why he would sacrifice the, and, and maybe he didn't know he was going to sacrifice as much as he did. Maybe he thought it was going to be three days, like a lot of other people said. But, yeah. but why he is sacrificing everything that he's sacrificing in terms of not only people, which fine, he, they're expendable to him or whatever, but just in terms of mm-hmm. the future military ability of this country for what's going on now. And is it just a point that you're pot committed to this thing and you've got to go through with it? What's your read on that whole thing in terms of the motivations there? Cause I, we all understand why Ukraine is defending themselves, but what I, don't understand and maybe i'm not going to even if i disagree with it but i think to better talk about it i've got to understand why this is happening in the first place yeah i mean i think this is a this is a really good question i would start out with just the notion that i think dictatorships are very brittle and that authoritarian regimes have a lot of problems that democracies don't have um and i I can i can talk about that a, a little bit more but i think it's at the root of why he does what he does, because I think in his mind, he is the Russian state. Right. Um, And I think that in his mind, you know, he can look at it and you hear this, you hear this in the West, right? You hear politicians and other academics even saying, well, this is all, this is all the United States and NATO's fault because they expanded NATO and he felt insecure. And so he's acting out. And and I, I, I firmly reject that kind of thinking because you know, the countries that are in NATO wanted to be in NATO. And why did they want to be in NATO? They wanted to be in NATO because they were tired of being trampled on by the by the Russians, right? They've been trampled on, many of them by the Nazis prior. Mm-hmm. Now they were, tra- then they were, you know, subjugated by the Russians. And so, the, you know, they're democracies and, 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 and they want to be like us. They want to move towards the West. And so it, it makes sense. They have agency. Ukraine has agency. Ukraine is going through this process in which they are beginning to make those similar moves. And there, there were several what we called color revolutions where Ukraine was making these decisions over, you know, the, 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 the years and decades that they didn't want to be inside of the Russian sphere of influence. They wanted to be more prosperous and they wanted to move towards, to, towards Europe. Well, that's all very threatening to, to Putin. Where some people say, well, then that means we should not expand NATO and we should tell the Ukrainians, sorry, you have dreams, but it's more important that 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 Putin is satiated. I I think that's completely ridiculous. So Putin sees all of this as a as a threat to his sphere of influence, but he sees it as a threat to his pride. Um, and again, I think that in Putin's mind, he is Russia. So whatever he needs to do, um, there's he'll spare no expense in lives or treasure to do this. Um, and, you know, all, the, the other thing that's going on is, you know, Ukraine, Ukraine is the birthplace of the Russian people in many ways. But then they went to Russia and Ukrainians became Ukrainian. Right. And if you look at a map of Ukraine, what you'll notice is there's a big river that runs right down the middle of that's the Dnieper River. Right. And right right at the top of that river is Kiev. And. You know, um, this this decision that I was talking about in Ukraine about whether to be Western or to be Russian is very geographically determined. People on the eastern side of that river tend to be Ukrainian in ethnic origin. They speak Ukrainian, right? They think of themselves as Ukrainian. On the western side, uh, many more ethnic Russians. And the reason there are so many ethnic Russians there is because during the Soviet era, Joseph Stalin pours a ton of 
Russians into that region so that it ekes out the native um, culture and they don't allow kids or people to speak Ukrainian and so on and so forth, right? So that oppression is there, but there's also a whole bunch of ethnic Russians living there. And so Putin comes and says, you know, something very similar to what Hitler said about the Sudetenland. Hey, there's a bunch of my people living in your area, so it should actually belong to us, right? That's called irredentism. And so, um, you know, he goes into the Donbass region and is like, we're going to, we're going to take this. And he did have some local support for that, right? What I think was most interesting was that, you know, because this war is not a couple years old. This war is like nine years old because it starts when he goes into the Donbass region with his quote unquote little green men. Mm-hmm. And so this is a long project for him. But just a few days before the invasion in Ukraine, um, you know, something really interesting happens. All of a sudden, a bunch of people in that western part who who he was counting on to who who Putin was counting on to sort of throw in with the Russians and help with the invasion, they started coming out into their villages and singing Ukrainian songs and flying Ukrainian flags. And it was like he he all of a sudden communicated that I'm going to roll in. And those people made a decision that they're not Russian, that they're Ukrainian. And so if Putin had some strategic goals, there probably were to pull Ukraine back into his um, sphere of influence to be able to dictate who's in government and so on and so forth. But the reality is he has helped to create an incredibly strong Ukrainian identity that does not want to give up on Mm. this war. Mm. And, that's something that that signals strategic defeat. He's committed a whole bunch of his military and he's lost a whole bunch of his military uh, in this. Right. So from the American perspective, any of the aid that we send to Ukraine is money well spent because it, it helps to dramatically degrade one of our, our biggest peer competitors. Um, and at the same time, you know, even the Chinese are stuck on the wrong side of this because the China has lost its position in Europe as a result of supporting Putin and Putin's, you know, ace in the hole, the fact that he was going to sell energy and make Europe dependent on his energy. Like that's also falling apart. Right. So Putin sees the greatest tragedy of the 20th century as the, the, as the fall of the Soviet union. And it's been his goal to reassemble those states. And he'll do it in any way he possibly can. But he's running headlong into the consequences of people not wanting to be under Russian occupation again. And I think that's kind of the big, those big forces that are at play here, if that makes sense. So he miscalculated in part what the response was going to be from different populations. Uh, Did he also, so that played into it, but, but also there were people saying, you know, pundits who know more than I do, but apparently not a lot who were saying, Hey, there's a great chance. Kiev is going to, is going to fall. This was back, whatever it was last March or two Marches ago. Yeah. Kiev is probably by, by Monday, Kiev probably be fallen. or there'll be a puppet government set up there. Uh, here we are Mm -hmm. what a year and a half later and it hasn't happened. And there is a long, bloody, seemingly endless war going on just from, you know, my, my incredibly cursory knowledge of these two countries, you see, you think of Russia's military and you think of what you would think Ukraine's military is, you would think, okay, of course, they're going to have the military might to be able to do this. How surprising is it that this thing has continued to go? And yes, you're right. Obviously, Ukraine has put up a, a fight in terms of the way that the people have had this spirit about it. 
But at some point, if you got all the planes, all the bombs, everything else, right, it's <laughs> that's not going to matter at some point. But it still hasn't happened. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of things that go into it, but you're absolutely right to point out that everybody thought, you know, it was a done deal. Um, but a couple of things happened in Ukraine. Some people pointed this out. I think, you know, we have been working with the Ukrainian military for a while um, and we have been training them. They are a they are a partner, a friend, right? They're not mm. they don't have official status, but right. you know, and there were there were American American soldiers in that they pulled out prior. Because you never know. The best case scenario happens for Ukraine, right? Um, there's been some really great commentary and work uh done on this. A, a guy I would really recommend for listeners is Michael Kaufman. Um, you can find him on War on the Rocks. Um, he, he's Ukrainian born, but he's a very good analyst. He, he, he does a lot of his work out of Washington, DC. And, you know, some of the things that he, he was bringing up is this notion that, Hey, look, you know, when the Russians attacked that airport, um, you know, there was reservists there. And if they get that airport, it's, you know, a, it's six or 10 kilometers from the center of Kiev. And then, you know, you get all your IL-76s and they come in and they disgorge lots of people. And then all of a sudden they've got the capital. They were unable to do that because there were guardsmen that were defending that. And they got a couple of lucky shots, and including knocking down a helicopter. And when when a guy knocks down a helicopter, all of a sudden everybody believes they can win. And you know, fire trucks and police officers and everyone, they came and they drove their vehicles onto the runway so that they couldn't land their airplanes, right? And that much of a delay was enough to get other people organized. And the resistance was incredibly fierce. And the Russians weren't prepared for that either, right? A lot of things bounced in the, in the Ukrainians' favor in those early days, but they take advantage of it. And I think it was also false to think that they wouldn't defend themselves. Um, if you look on paper, right, the Russians have this great big scary military and the Ukrainians have a very old antiquated military from a bunch of cast off Russian stuff. Right. Mm -hmm. But that's only part of the picture. At the end of the day, the will to fight is also an incredibly important variable. And I think that was one of the things that no one was really clear on. And I think it was really um, demonstrated when you, you remember um, in those early days and like the U.S. said, hey, Zelensky, you know, we'll get you out of the country. And he says, I don't need a ride. I need some guns. Yeah, I remember. Right. That. Mm -hmm. And and that's the birth. That's the birth of a legend right there. But Ukrainians buy in. Right. And all of a sudden, the Russians have made a couple of mistakes. They couldn't get people in quick enough. So they they lose they lose the airport. And then they're coming down from. Belarus on a road that has no other roads attached to it in a, basically a bog. They get bogged down, right? Their entire operation to get to Kiev founders. And, you know, and then the Ukrainians have an amazing counteroffensive last year. There's a lot of evidence that suggests the counteroffensive now is beginning to pick up steam. Um, you know, this could be a war of attrition that doesn't favor the Ukrainians. Um, but I, but at the same time, you, you, you absolutely have to look at the situation and be like, they responded, um, with a will to fight that I don't think people calculated. And it turned out to be absolutely critical for, you know, really stopping this, this Russian military. The other thing I would say is, wow, did the Russians perform miserably? Right. I think that we look at these military, this military and we're like, OK, they're they're coming and here's what they're going to do and so on and so forth. And they did not perform. 
Right. Right. Um, right. And I, I, so again, this is another one of those areas where Putin has to be like, holy crap, you know, I, on paper, I look pretty good, but operationally, I just kind of got my butt kicked by an army that's 20 years older. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. What, how much of a impact, and I don't know how you quantify it exactly. We've referred to this and we'll talk in a little bit about how this may end, but how much of an impact, like right now, are we on where Russia is militarily from where they were when they started this? And how far down that path is this really going to go to change, completely change how they're able to defend themselves or, or offensively attack or, or anything in terms of military power? Yeah, I, I think this is the right question to ask. And I also think this is the conversation that's dominating the conversations about the war. Um, you know, the Russians are beginning to build more shells. This is another thing that I think we need to take a, a really close look at the way we do things, because the one thing I, I, I don't see that I wish I saw from us is we're going to manufacture just a whole bunch of ammunition. And the way our supply chain for this kind of thing is distributed, it's not very efficient to do that in, in this. I, I think we should change that. I think we should, someone should go in and be like, we need a whole bunch of 155 millimeter shells. The Russians are experiencing shell hunger as well. Um, but they're ramping up their ability to, to produce those things. So then the question becomes, well, what becomes of Ukraine? If the Russians are, are going to be able to manufacture and make up some of their losses. What about Ukraine? Unfortunately, relies very heavily on foreign aid, right? So they're going to be in this thing as long as they have foreign aid coming in to support them. And the problem with that is that you know, while I think the democracies of the West have performed admirably so far, it only t- takes an election here or there, or um, you know, the will of the people to change and say we don't want to do this anymore for the Ukrainians all of a sudden to be experienced to, to be in dire straits. So there's a whole bunch of variables that go into this. Holding together a coalition is not always an easy thing to do. But the Russians, you know, um, they have they've had manpower problems as well. Um, and the Ukrainians are running into manpower problems. So mm-hmm. it's not it doesn't look particularly good on either side. And if you get into this bigger war of attrition and it just kind of stagnates and bogs down, you know, you start to think the Russians can probably consolidate a lot of their gains, particularly because they're on the defense right now. And it's easier to play defense than offense. Offense is expensive um, in, in, in material and in, um, in lives. So, you know, I, I, can the Ukrainians come up with a game changer? Um, Are our political uh, realities inside of Russia going to change? You know, this whole thing with uh, Prigozhin was right. incredibly interesting. Um, and some people said that's a real uh, or indictment on on Putin's control. Um, you know, it, so much remains to be seen. And I think what nobody wants is something that bogs down uh, endlessly. And, yeah. you know, if the Ukrainians can make some some good gains here in the next couple of weeks and then hold the Russians back and then maybe make some more gains in a future offensive, maybe they're moving in the right direction. But at some point we might have to start talking about, well, what's the price of peace? Is it giving up parts of the Donbass? Is it making some kind of compromise on Crimea? Because I think when we think about where it goes from there, there's a lot for Ukraine to gain as soon as this thing is over. Right. Um, I mean, some sort of a session path into the EU that looks likely 
um, where you didn't think that was going to be the case. Mm-hmm. Some sort of a session path into NATO, which nobody thought would have been a possibility, but now all of a sudden that's squarely on the table. So, you know, at some point the Ukrainians might have to think to themselves, um, we could get on with living if we could figure out a way to get out of this and maybe there's a price to be paid, but all of a sudden our security position improves dramatically if we're able to do that. And I don't think Zelensky's there yet, but I do think that he has to be entertaining that in his mind. You mentioned the political situation in Russia. And one of the things that I always thought, because I heard other people say this, but I always thought, you know, one of the ways this ends is that Putin is somehow taken out of power uh, by people who are sick of it, essentially, um, and want to go another direction. Um, you're right. The stuff happened with Prigozhin and, and last in, in what June, July of this year, where it looked like something like that might be underway. Didn't turn out to happen. How close do you think, or are we even close to something like that happening at some point if this thing continues to go on? Yeah. So I think Americans love to think that a coup is always around the corner. (laughs) And I think that we like to think that because we see political change happen so fast in a democracy. It's normal, right? Like someone does a bad job, then all of a sudden they don't have a job. Uh, Dictators oftentimes do a really bad job and they're in power for a very long time. Right. I mean, this is, again, why I think um, authoritarianism is is such an odious, you know, uh, way of, of, uh, of going about doing things. I think that Putin has a stranglehold over Russia. I will be really surprised if he loses power. Um, and the reason is, is because, you know, the way that here's what, here's one of the reasons why, why I think that when Prigozhin goes into Russia, he stops and takes over like the largest military staging base into Ukraine. And what did the people in the town do in Rostov? What do they do? They came out with their, with their phones and took pictures and they milled around and then they went back home. Right. Like he has bred a sense of apathy into the Russian people that ensures his ability to rule. Right. They don't care because caring is dangerous. So it's better to not care and just let him do what he's going to do. Right. I mean, when you have an apathetic public, there's a lot of problems with it. But for him, it's a, it's a survival strategy. So are people going to get up in the streets and go and protest him? No, they're not going to do that because there's too much to lose. And also, he's inevitable in their minds, right? This is this is Russian history played out over, you know, a thousand years or 800 years or however long. It's there's somebody in charge and you are powerless to do anything about that. And he's he's coup proofed himself in so many ways inside of the Kremlin. He's eliminated a lot of the opposition. And then I think the other thing you have to think about is, yeah, well, just because he might be gone, is the person who's replacing him somebody that we want? Because I think the answer is no. I think that there's really, really aggressive, more nationalistic kinds of people that could potentially replace him. He's done such a good job of neutering the the moderates and the left in his country his major uh, opposition now comes from the extreme hard right, and they might be willing to do things that he's not even willing to do. So, you know, I mean, I, I think you could look at this and just be like, there's no good options. Like, there's, there's nothing nothing to look forward to. I, I want to move on to the, the NATO part of this, and you referred to it, but a lot of people have said oh, this is, uh, you know, one of the things that has been an unintended consequence of this for for Putin is that the alliances against him have strengthened. I want to know if you, yeah. if you, if you buy that, if you believe that, I think you said you do, but, but do you do? And then 
Help me understand the significance of something like Finland wanting to join NATO and, and why that was such a big deal. So I think alliances are really hard to maintain. I think they're historically um, they're historically uh, tough arrangements, and they're the very best thing we could possibly ever do. And the fact that we have something like the NATO alliance shows how successful the United States has been in providing its for its own security and defense, but also that of others. You have alliances because alliances let you do a bunch of things you can't do on your own, and they give you legitimacy along the way. And they also, in this case, NATO has done a fantastic job of protecting and increasing the number of democracies in Europe, right? Um, Europe had been a mess for hundreds and hundreds of years, and then after World War II, NATO locks in the peace, right? Um, I think one of the ways that the bureaucrats originally talked about this was NATO was a way of uh, keeping Russia out, Germany down, and the United States in, right? And it, it has by and large served that purpose. And after the Cold War was over, people were like, well, what good is NATO, right? And I think it, it searched for this identity. And then Putin brought back its identity in full by, you know, being aggressive and, and threatening um, all these all of these other um, countries. And a lot of the new members of NATO you know, it wasn't like we went out and asked them all to join just to make the Russians angry. A lot, we did not ask them to join. They asked us to join. Um, and they were like, we are done. We are done with totalitarianism and we want to be Western democracies. And they have thrived. You look at Poland, you look at the Baltic states, you look at all these other countries. Then you have these, then you have these countries that were neutral. Finland, who is on the border with Russia and has a long uh, and sort of truculent history with them. Uh, and then you have Sweden, right? And these countries were, they, they were neutral against the Nazis. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? right. Finland, Finland, Finland was, was kind of an ally, right? Of, of, of the Germans. They were like, okay, we're done. We're off the fence. We, we, we want to join. Right. Um, and so that tells you something. But what it does is this having an alliance system, particularly an alliance of democracies enhances our security. It is hard to maintain sometimes because you have to listen to your your allies. You have to promise them that you're going to defend them. So there's security guarantees baked in, right? But when you think about the amount of political and military power you're able to pull from that, it's so much more than you could ever do on your own. And if you want to know the main difference of strength between the U.S. and Russia, they don't have friends, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And, and the Chinese don't have friends either. And all mm. of their relationships are purely transactional, right? Mm. Yeah. And that's why it's imp- that's why it's important when a new president is elected that they go to Europe and they stand up and they say, we're committed to NATO and we're committed to Article 5. And if any of you guys are in trouble, we're going to be there for you. Yeah. It's one of the most important things that a president can do. Um, and I think that, you know, people should be in awe of this moment we live in history where something like this exists and something like this is this successful. And they should be a little proud of the fact that the United States has been able to hold it together this long. Now I want to ask you about politics back in the <laughs> United States responding to this whole thing. Because yeah. I grew up, Tyler, in you know, in the uh, Ronald Reagan, Rocky IV, Top Gun era yeah. of United States versus the Soviet Union uh, adversarialism. Okay? Uh, mm-hmm. And especially in politics and especially among Republicans, um, there is a, it's just, it's taken me by surprise, um, as kind of a layman on this, that there has been the kind of, 
I don't know if support is the right word, but, um, you know, treating Putin as something less than an enemy throughout this entire thing, uh, by some. Is that just part and parcel of, you know, Trump has whatever happening, you know, he was like that. He talked about Putin mm-hmm. that way at times. Is that just people wanting to echo that and be the same thing? Or is there something else going on here that I'm just not aware about that has really changed? in conservative american politics about russia yeah so i i i'm right there with you i'm you know i think ronald reagan is like rolling over in his grave when it comes to you know the sort of this sort of strange embrace of russia by some i think it is a divisive issue within the republican yes, party i, see. I agree i agree you, know, you, yeah. you look at you look at a mitt romney or some of these other folks but so I think the re- one of the reasons is is because Putin is making a very concerted effort to say, "Hey, I my thing is I'm going to defend these traditional masculine values, right?" Um and if you look at Russian society, it is it is deeply deeply conservative, but it's not really conservative in like helpful ways. Like I think, you know, what the great thing about having conservatives, you know, in, in your government and your society is that they keep you from doing dumb stuff sometimes because they're kind of like, hey, wait a minute, let's pump the brakes and let's think about this. Right. What what goes on there is the protection of these sort of deeply misogynistic values, um, but they look traditional. Right. Women have a have a traditional place and, um, you know, they they really like and Putin is, has made an entire uh, a career of looking powerful and making people think of him as a powerful person. And that's very attractive to people who are looking at a world that's changing and they don't understand the change or they don't like the change. And Putin is basically saying, well, we're going to stop all the change, right? This change is all destructive. Your embrace of, you know, of the gay community, of immigrants, of all of these different kinds of things. And people take a look at, at I think, at, at the way things are changing. They're like, well, I don't like those things either. And so to some extent, you know, Putin stands out as somebody who stand, says, I'm going to stand up and I'm going to defend these values. But I think if you don't look at the way he's, quote unquote, defending these values and you don't look at the toll it's taking on his own people and you don't look at the brutality um, through which he's he's, you know, imposing these things, then you're doing yourself a disservice because he is a he is a, a brutal individual who kills his political opponents who um who's deeply deeply cynical about things um that might be one reason why he's popular i think that there's just this strange thing going on not just in america but in other democracies as well where some people want to embrace authoritarianism because they think that it will slow down a world that is changing rapidly and doesn't make hmm. sense. And so it's one way to kind of run home to mama. You know, you get a little, <laughs> you're, you know, you're worried about the way things are changing. And so you want somebody who's strong to come in and tell you that they shouldn't be changing and that they're going to stop that change. Um, just, and Putin, Putin exudes that. It's just odd because you'll hear someone say something, a politician say something that is at least vaguely, you know, anti uh, anti-Ukraine, pro-Russia, and this whole thing. And then they'll turn around five minutes later and use the term communist as a pejorative for someone they disagree with. Yeah. I'm like, I'm like, right. um, yeah. like, you know what Putin was doing? Like, you know what Putin was doing over the last 30, 40 years, but it's, yeah. it's just, it's crazy on that whole thing. I got, I, I, I want to get a couple more questions in with you. I, I have a few more minutes. Um, 
Sure. Let's 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 talk about the impact of what's going on. We talked a bunch about Russia and Ukraine. A lot of times it's said, okay, this is setting the stage for what is going to happen for China and Taiwan and China is watching this to see what happens. Uh, how yeah. how much is how much of that do you believe is true and what is the impact between however this all works out with Russia and Ukraine and what happens next with China and Taiwan? Yeah, so I think it's a great question. I'm going to flip it just a little bit and say that, yes, of course, they're watching what we're doing. But I think we're also paying really close attention to how to do this. Right. Um, you know, how do you how do you support Ukraine in a way that is effective? Because we might need to support Taiwan in a way that is also effective. Right. Um, and I think, too, that, you know, you can look at a lot of presidents as being sort of wishy washy. And, you know, on on the on the whole commitment to Taiwan issue, because we were constantly trying to woo China. And in order to do that, we had to be wishy washy on Taiwan without abandoning them. Now, I have friends who are Taiwanese. I think Taiwan is a tremendous success story, right, of development. I mean, if you look at where they are, they're a fully functioning pluralistic democracy. They produce, you know, they've got a great industry and so on and so forth. And I think the same thing about like South Korea. And you could make the the argument about Ukraine. At the end of the day, though, the most important thing to me is that these are fully functioning democracies. They're like us. And that's worth that's worth our time and effort. Right. And I think that by going to to Ukraine and saying those things and by the by the Western alliance, Saying those things and committing to Ukraine, it has to give China a little bit of pause to think that we might do that. And, and much to the chagrin of his advisors, Biden has said on multiple occasions that we will use force to defend Taiwan. Yeah. Right. And, you know, a lot of people, I think Americans have always been kind of isolationist. Um, I think that's a deep seated streak, but I also, I would make the argument you know, every day of the week and twice on Sunday that, hey, there's something special about democracies. There's something special about market democracies. They have flaws, but at the end of the day, their people are more prosperous and they make the world a better place and they are worth defending. And so I think the Chinese are watching what's going on in Ukraine and and saying, hey, it wouldn't be just us versus Taiwan. It would be us versus who, right? right? And that's got to go into the calculation that they're making. What's the biggest difference between the situation Taiwan has with China and Ukraine has with Russia, other than that, it's spilled over militarily already in the in the latter. Well, I think first of all, Taiwan is um, is a much more mature democracy and 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 country. But the most the most important difference is that there's water in between the two of them, right? I mean, uh, it's it's a big deal to cross to cross that strait, right? Um, mm-hmm. And and can the Chinese do it right now? They might not be able to do it right now but they might be aiming to do it, right? Um, China also, you know, makes these same sort of claims that Russia does, which is this has always been a part of us, right? Um, and so it's rightfully ours. And so that's why we're laying claim to it. That's why we're going to take it, right? And the people, you know, in those countries, there's there are some of those people in those countries that say, yes, we should be a part of the mainland or we should be a part of Russia, but the governments don't think so. And the governments in both cases are determined in, through a democratic process and by and, 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 and by those people. And I think this is where it's tricky for China because China runs around behaving badly all the time. And what they say is, hey, state sovereignty, right? You can't tell us what to do. Um, and this is why they were in kind of a pickle when it came to 
to um, to Russia because Russia clearly violated state sovereignty that everyone agreed upon. And the Chinese are usually the ones that come in and be like, ah, you shouldn't do that. You know, don't invade Iraq, state sovereignty. Don't right. do this, state sovereignty. And then the Russians did it. They're kind of like, oh, you know, but. <laughs> You know, Taiwan yeah. doesn't have that same statehood status, right? They're kind of in this in-between where we, they're our ally, we, we pledge to defend them, but we don't call them China because, you know, right? Right. Um, and th- there was a whole long history is fascinating where Nixon goes to China and so on and so forth. But that's another difference is that the political situation is a little bit different as well. You've also got water. You know, as opposed to a land border, which I think is 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 a is a huge thing as well. Yeah, it's great. It's it, great analysis. I I love it. Um, well, I don't love it, but I like I like having it in a way that I can understand it a lot better. Last question for you, and and one that you know kind of really hits home to what you do and what you're doing for a living right now, and the students that you're dealing with. Uh, we talked four years ago when we first did the podcast, and we talked more on that one, kind of about. The, your 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 teaching and and your students and those sorts of things, but I've got to imagine like even even during your career, the perception of of the idea of going in to the extent you've got students going into intelligence, to the extent you've got mm-hmm. students who want to be in the CIA or something like that, those institutions are looked at differently by a lot of people now than they were even just a few years ago because of sure. what's happened politically in our country. How has that impacted? what you do, the interest of students talking about them, getting into them, or is it, is it too early for that? Or how has that just kind of impacted everything that you do for that? That's another one of those things that, you know, has taken this amazing, you know, flip-flop where it was kind of like, you know, you thought about, I mean, the FBI is, you know, deeply conservative, right. you know, kind of. Um, there's, there's never been a director that hasn't been a Republican, for instance, right? Um and I would, I would look at it two ways. Uh, thing number one, you know, I, I have a background in human rights. Um, and, you know, I, I spend a lot of time doing that kind of work. So I'm sensitive to it. I, I also think that, you know, the way you, you, you put yourself out there in the world as a country, if you have certain values, you just sort of live by those values. And I know that those criticisms oftentimes are leveled at things like the CIA. And you can point to a lot of bad behavior over time, but the people that I've worked with and the people that, um, and, and the projects I've worked on have been, uh, universally, um, awesome. And that I see people, whenever I work with these folks, I see people who are all in it for the right reasons. They're committed to public service. They're, they're, they're patriots, but they're also free thinking individuals. And you want that in a, in a true patriot. You want somebody who can take a look at something and be like, this is the right thing to do, or this is not the right thing to do. Um, and, and you have those people. So those are the kinds of students that I, I want to see succeed. But I've never had a problem with students, um, you know, coming in and being like, I, part of it's self-selection too, right? I mean, they self-select into, into this program. Um, but the thing that I get over and over again is students who could make a lot more money doing something else in private industry and they choose to go down this path because they care about their country and they want to serve it. Mm-hmm. And those kinds of motivations really speak to me. And so I want to give whatever I can give in order to get them to, to that place. And I have to say, you know, getting into the CIA, the Har- Harvard accepts more people uh, into Harvard every year than the CIA accepts. Right. And the intelligence community is a tough place to get into. Um, and, you know, we were hoping when we started this program that we were going to get out of, you know, 13, 14 students graduating, we would get two or three 
into the community. And in the past few years, you know, 50% of the students who are graduating out of this um, program are getting a job right away. And then it goes up. And some people self-select into grad school or they go and they do this right. or they go and do that. But I have been amazed at the number of students who are successfully getting jobs. And, you know, the best part about that, when I go to D.C., I send out a couple of emails and I have a dozen or more students who show up and, you know, I don't have to pay for a drink and <laughs> they can't tell me half the stuff that they're doing. But I can see I can see that they're working their butt off and I can see that they're enjoying it. And I and I know that they're contributing to something greater than themselves, which makes me happy. And I know it makes them happy. So. You know, at the end of the day, we should all be so lucky to 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 have uh, the ability to work with people and to help them to develop and grow, and then know that the product of that is going to be something that benefits everybody. Yeah. Well, I, I'm glad that you're doing what you're doing and helping getting really good people into those positions of really important jobs, and so I appreciate that. And and. Uh, I appreciate uh, just your ability to kind of talk through some of these headlines with me. Give yeah, me some real important, pleasure. real important, interesting context. Uh, answer the questions that I've got. I'm just firing them off and you're ready all the time. But <laughs> and I, it might have been a little self-serving for me, but I hope our listeners um, hopefully were wondering some of the same things. And we just touched on just a tiny bit, but uh, important stuff in the headlines. And I, I think we I think it serves us well to have a good idea about what's going on, why it's going on, and all those things. And I think you did a great job explaining that stuff today. And I hope we get a chance to talk again sometime soon on yeah, this. Yeah, I, 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 I know this is great. And and if I could if I could impart like one bit of advice, I think going going forward uh, is be curious about the world and do not be embarrassed if you were wrong about something, um, because that's all part of learning. And being wrong is uh, just means that all of a sudden now you know something you didn't know before. So have an open mind and uh, be curious about the world. And I think everybody everybody has a, a tool to make it through their day a little bit a little bit more easily. So Jack, this has been great. I I love I love chatting with you. Um, so if you ever need anything else, you know where to find me. And I really appreciate yeah. it. I'll probably ask you again to kind of go through the headlines with me. And in the meantime, best of luck with the Huskers and the Broncos this fall. Oh man. I'm hoping. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. We're, I got my, I got my Broncos. I got my Broncos flag out, which, which I'm sure is a curse. I've been, oh my gosh. I'm asking you like extremely advanced level questions the entire time. And right away you got an answer for me. And right there for the first time, all podcast, you're like, I don't know what to say. I feel like you tried everything. I, you know, like <laughs> uh, my wife has to keep telling me you have nothing to do with nothing you were doing is affecting the outcome, and I'm like, I know, but I gotta, I gotta figure this out, right? Yeah, that's great. That's great. And I know you probably don't know who he is, but if you see my son on campus, make sure he's uh, not doing something he shouldn't be. All right. <laughs> all right. I will. I will go around just, just checking. Uh, just to ask kids sure random. Yeah, 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 absolutely. All right. All right. Well, take care. It's good to talk to you. Thank you very much. That's uh, Tyler White, Jack Mitchell podcast. See you next time on the pod.